Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, I talk to Michael Groves. Michael is a sustainability leader with over 20 years of experience, currently the CEO of Topolytics, looking to make the world's waste verifiable and valuable. His knack for storytelling and solving problems is a combo for intrigue, alongside his passion for sustainability being unmatched. Let's get into it. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat to me. I really appreciate it. And welcome to the podcast. And um, we're really excited to have you and I'm really happy to chat to you today. Um, just to kick us off, please do uh, introduce yourself and uh, to our audience and share a little bit about what you're known for. Thanks, Joshua. It's great to be here. And um, so I'm Mike Gross and I'm uh, currently... Uh, the founder and chief exec of a company called Topolytics. Uh, we're based in Edinburgh and we're a data aggregation analytics business. And our, our stated mission in life is to make the world's waste visible, verifiable, and valuable. So essentially what we're doing is we're working with, in the main, large organizations, large companies that have very complex and mixed waste streams. And it's you know a very expensive kind of um, supply chain to deal with. Um, and they start to ask questions about what happens to that material, where does it go, what's the impact of that, you know, how can we improve our the insights so we can improve the levels of resource efficiency, how we can improve reporting, particularly feeding into sort of the ESG uh, requirements around waste and materials, et cetera. Um, and they've got a real challenge there because the data just frankly is is in the main either non-existent or it's not visible to them or it's, it's sitting in silos. So we bring it all together into one place we standardize it and clean it and normalize it. And so all our customer has to do is basically log in and they can kind of see where all that material is and what happens to it. And, uh, and they can start to make better decisions about it. So so that's what I, I currently do. Brilliant. Well, that's a great background. And the the thing about ESG is that it often always focuses on um, you know carbon emissions, energy use, and transportation. Obviously, you focus on waste, as you explained there. And to get people to think about that a little bit more. And why do you think people aren't talking about it more within the space of ESG? It's a it's a really good question. I think, so specifically to that point, I mean, waste, if you think about waste, it, both commercial and industrial waste, so the stuff that companies and all big organizations are producing, and or even the stuff that we're putting into our own bins at home, it's kind of just been... You know, it's a cost of doing business. You know, it's it's just what happens, isn't it? It's just like the the the, the paradigm is one where you basically stick it in a bin, hopefully the right bin, and it somebody comes along and they take it away from you and they just remove the problem from you and they deal with it, don't they? So, uh, and so I guess us as individuals, as householders or consumers, have a similar attitude to it, to as companies have traditionally, which is being well, it's just a a cost of doing business. Therefore, we pay somebody responsible come on site and remove that material and then job done. Um, so, I, so I think that's been the just approach. But I think if you think about ESG you know, broadly, of course, it covers a very, very broad range of topics, is it not? I mean, so in the in the past, I, I previously had a, a business, a consultancy that did sustainability stroke ESG reporting. So, you know, coming from that world where it was previously called CSR, um, corporate social responsibility, but of course, CSR, frankly, I think should be rebadged as common sense, really, because actually, are you, if you're an, if you're a business, you know, are you deliberately going to go out and infringe rules and regulations on the environment and pollute the environment? Are you deliberately going to go out and treat your employees badly? Are you deliberately going to go out and 
and treat your suppliers and and, and customers badly. Um, and you know, because ultimately it will have a detrimental effect on the on the if you like financial um, sort of economic kind of performance. So um, so I've sort of come from that world. So I see that you know that broad spread of 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 topics and issues that that, that sustainability and ESG sort of focuses on. And obviously within that you've got environment, the E bit, um, and obviously that covers, as you say, that's covering a whole range of things, water use, energy use, carbon emissions, um, pollution, you know, all of those kind of biodiversity, et cetera. And waste is kind of one part of that, that whole kind of, um, kind of matrix. And, um, so, so I think it, 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 because it may not be seen to be material within the context of ESC. So materiality is a really important sort of part of that whole thing because, you know, everybody, you know, you, it's very difficult for a company to tackle everything all at once because it's such a broad spread of things. And so, you, you know, so within a reporting context, the company has to sort of say, okay, go through a process of, of deciding logically what are the most important things to my company or to my organization. And these are the things that I need to address as a matter of priority. So the material kind of impacts or issues. Um, and you know, waste. I think traditionally maybe hasn't been seen as being that important, but what we're seeing now is that it is absolutely rising up the the list of things to be prioritised. Now, you're right when you say that though. Still, there's a big focus on carbon emissions, a big focus on net zero. But the one thing that we're we're also seeing, and the one thing we we talk about, is that when you're thinking about net zero. And you think about carbon emissions globally, where are all this carbon emissions coming from? Well, a lot of them are coming from the, the extraction of raw materials, the movement of raw materials, the conversion of raw materials into products and, and, and goods, the, the, the selling and the use and the distribution of those, 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 those products. And then those products coming to the end of their useful lives and going into the waste system. So actually, to, the material bit of of carbon is really, really important. And and so so certainly we're seeing that as well. So people are thinking, well, we need to look at carbon in our supply chains. So we're looking at upstream supply chains. So thinking about raw materials in, but they're now thinking, yeah, but waste, all that stuff, all that stuff that we're responsible for that, that that's then being collected, actually there's a carbon um, impact there as well. So that's also a factor that's starting to, to, to play into people's decision-making, I think. And then obviously on the, on the subject of waste, so that people view it through the lens of, like you were saying, individual and household waste and not really thinking of um, some of the more wider repercussions that come with it. Obviously, you know, the people think recycling plastics, but it becomes so much more when you think about it from a commercial perspective with, you know, hazard, hazardous materials and incinerator waste. And how do you think you would get more companies to get an interest in where their waste actually goes? Yeah. So I think it's a really good point. I mean, I think because we're so because we've been exposed to you know things like obviously god bless david attenborough and and and, and everything that he's done but specifically when he you know started this alert about ocean plastics and and obviously it's been talk, you know it, people have been trying to address this for a long time but you know i think he he helped to bring it into sort of public consciousness so there is that so there is that um view that it's very much a consumer problem you know, it's a it's a it's a householder uh, individual problem, 
So, and it is clearly, you know, the plastic that is is leaking out of the system and is, isn't being kind of handled or managed or processed or disposed of is ending up in the environment. And that is a major, major issue. Um, but if you think about the volume of those kind of materials, you know, the volume of waste that's coming out of the industrial system and out of construction, it's so much bigger. You know, there's so much more material, but that doesn't really get the attention because it is an industrial, you know, it's, it's within that industrial sphere. So, so that is a good, that's a point that's worth making. But to your question about convincing companies, you know, that it's important that they do know what happens to their waste. Actually, we're not having to do too much convincing now. I mean, maybe five years ago, yes. But I think now what the first question that, that companies are coming to us with is, what does happen to, to my waste? So they see us as being able to help them to answer that question. So, and obviously, you know, not everybody's in the same position, not everybody's engaging with it in the same way. So, so we, like all other tech companies, have to go out there and market ourselves and sell, sell our proposition and, and, and everything else. Um, but we're definitely seeing, if you like, the, the environment, the market environment, um, and the market environment around carbon, around ESG, there's a load of solutions obviously out there and more solutions by the day. Um, so we're sort of playing into that. So, yeah, I think we are responding to a kind of a momentum shift in terms of the way people are starting to sort of think about some of these issues and waste. When you look at, uh, we did a we, we did a survey of the uh, looked at the FTSE 350. Um, we looked at their published reports on sustainability, and yeah, about 85 percent of them were saying something publicly in those reports about waste, circular economy, resource efficiency. So so it is quite it is sort of quite prevalent now that that that, that companies are starting to set targets and start to sort of build some kind of strategies to reduce waste, to um, build closed loops for materials, to um, to sort of try and move towards more of a sort of circular economy type approach. Uh, but it all starts with understanding what's happening at the moment in the first place, and that's what where we sort of help them to start on that on that sort of process. And and, and of those eighty five to eighty eight percent of of companies that sort of release these reports and this this data, a lot of it might stem from say societal pressure and to to sort of look good to to, to shareholders and to the to the general public. And what what advice would you give to companies who are wanting to do a little bit more with the data instead of just releasing it and just being like this is our data? What are the sort of next steps that they could take post-releasing a report to make that sort of change happen for the better? Well, there's a couple of things there. So I think traditionally, when you think about that kind of reporting, it, it does have a bad rap um, because traditionally it was seen as being greenwashing. Um, you know, so, and this goes back to the, you go back 20 odd years when actually it was called CSR reporting. And that's what I mean about, you know, it, it, you know, it started life as a, you know, just let's get some nice pictures of, of forests and trees and, 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 and people and, um, and flowers and, and we'll say some nice things about the stuff we're doing. So, so, you know, that, I, that's, there's still an element, you know, there are still challenges with greenwashing, but what's happening is that there are now new regulations and laws coming in in Europe and in the U S around greenwashing and companies are being fined uh, by you know the, sort of by the regulators 
when they're deemed to be greenwashing. So that so that, so the risks now attached to misstating this kind of stuff and saying things that you can't actually back up with 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 data are much higher. So that that that's what what one thinks. But if you think about the reporting bit, the report is really just a reflection of what they are actually doing. It's not what they're doing. It's a reflection of that. So so really, that's why it's really important that, and, and, and again, the rules on reporting, traditionally that, you know, those kind of reports, there was a very, very light touch approach to auditing of those reports. Um, so it was, it would be called limited assurance. Um, but now what you've got are new rules coming in. If you got specifically in Europe, you've got the, I think called the corporate sustainability reporting directive, which was adopted a few months ago. Um, in, um, and it was going to, it's going to cover initially at least 49,000 companies that either have operate in the EU or have a footprint in the EU. And some of the requirements there are, are you know, much more stringent about the data, the quality of the data. And there's a specific requirement around the quality of data on waste and the circular economy as well. And then also the assurance and the auditing is going to go from limited to more of a more of a financial audit. So so the scrutiny is going to be so much greater on those the, that kind of reporting. So I think you know so I think the report has to ultimately will have to reflect the reality on the ground. Traditionally I think there may have been a little bit of a disconnect between 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 the two things. And having written I've written many of those reports in a previous life so I I kind of understand some of the sort of challenges there. Um so I think that 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 is definitely going to bite. So so my my advice would be to, and again, I think there's a there's maybe a, a view that this needs to be really complex and really expensive, and you know you need to tackle everything all at once. You know, my advice would be to just just take a sensible approach to addressing the things that you think are important and being able to explain why you think they're important. And then, and then just start to sort of, you know, take one step at a time. You know, if it means start by actually collecting some good quality data to start with, so you can kind of benchmark where you are looking, you know, looking at what others are doing, learning from others. There's lots of kind of peer support and things out there. And then just start on a, on a, so don't feel that you need to sort of, you know, go hell for leather and sort of like solve the world's problems in one, in one go, um, specifically on, on waste. I mean, so we put out a paper called putting the w into esg which is you know available on the website etc and again what we're saying there is it's worth taking another look at that don't just rely on what data you currently have or what you might be being told by different waste contractors not that they're necessarily lying to you but they they may not be giving you the full picture and so you you know so there is an opportunity to start asking a few more questions around it and by asking those questions that starts to unlock maybe a little bit more kind of information, a little bit more uh, data. But don't just take for granted what you might currently, you know, what might you currently think might be happening. I, I think is probably the starting point. So it doesn't have to be all about sensors or you know expensive sort of systems. Some of it may just be actually, you know, for example, looking at building some kind of processes internally to start measuring stuff before it gets collected by a waste company. So, you know, just looking at it that way and, and, and that just involves a bit of a, a process change, you know, a bit of, you know, maybe even like a, an Excel based kind of measurement thing. It, it, it doesn't have to be really complex, 
really expensive. It's more of a sort of process and, and procedure change that might start to kind of, you know, reap some benefits. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. You've touched on it a little bit there, but the what is the sort of a little bit more detail about the balance between data collecting and action within the space of ESG because obviously both is necessary like you say but at what point do you stop with the data collection and and thinking and sensors and all that wonderful stuff and start thinking about the strategy and sort of next steps well I guess to a certain extent you can the strategy you, you know certainly what we see is we see so if we're starting work with a company that has set a target for, say, zero waste to landfill, okay, that's <laughs> that's where they're trying to get to. Um, <laughs> so they're already kind of like, oh, right, okay, well we've we've made that public commitment. So, um, so that's what one aspect to it. I, I I think in terms of the the data collection piece, the other thing that we would say is that the traditional approach to analysing waste but that's not you know and it actually could be applied to other things as well has been to do a one-off almost like study or, or audit so maybe bring in a consultancy or do it yourself do a little kind of study generate some outputs generate a report and then then you've got something you can act on but the problem is i say it's a problem and an opportunity so the problem is of course if you take something like waste it's always being produced. It's always being collected. It's always being moved, and that 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 map, that that material flow map, is always changing because you, as a business, may be closing down a site. You may be opening a site. You may be having a new process. So that generates different material. So the the the, the source of the material is always kind of changing and moving then you will have different contractors coming on site to move stuff and they will have commercial relationships with third parties for buying and selling and processing that material. So that 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 supply chain is constantly shifting in terms of what then is happening to that material. So so my view would be a one-off kind of view, you know, study is fine up to a point, but it very, very quickly goes out of date. So so we think that you really should be sort of trying to sort of measure on an ongoing, uh, collect data on an ongoing basis. But to do that, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't require, you know, it doesn't require some kind of expensive, you know, kind of solutions uh, for doing that. So, for example, you know, we've been working with some manufacturers and one of the challenges for them is like, how do we ascribe where waste is being generated if we've got multiple production lines on a very sort of complex site? Because, but it's only a problem because actually they're, they're only being, the material's only being measured once it's all been put into one big container. But actually, they could very easily sort of just, you know, barcode, you know, sort of smaller bins. And, you know, it doesn't have to be kind of expensive and they can kind of have a log of, okay, how much material went into this particular bin before it goes into a, a kind of larger container. So there's all sorts of kind of things that could be done quite quite easily. And by doing that, that actually gives them an opportunity to sort of really pin down where material is falling out of a production process in that context. And that actually points to, well, maybe we can make some process improvements here, or we, maybe we can sort of drive some efficiencies. 
Um, so, so I think when it comes to waste, the devil is in the detail. And if you can, if you can kind of get through that, and it's possible to do that without spending lots of money and, and, and expense and, and sophistication, then there is no doubt there are opportunities to to, to drive improvements. I mean, another example would be um, uh, a, a company that we work with uh, as a drinks company, and they're bottling, you know, tens of thousands of bottles, you know, being being created and then filled and and, and distributed. Um, and just by taking out one component of that from the recycle, all of the waste would go into a recycling kind of supply chain. But by taking out one particular material and actually selling it back to the manufacturer, who then would process it back into 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 stuff they could buy back, it just takes it out of the recycling system. It saves them money. It saves carbon, and it saves on lots of material that may not be properly recycled or reprocessed. So there's all sorts of opportunities there. With that second example, it almost seems deceptively simple in a sense of just taking like one little element out of it, and it makes a huge impact. You know? Yeah, deceptively simple. It makes it sound as though it's it's actually it's like you know, you know, magic. You know, it's it's like it's, <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's, it's 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 some kind of yeah. But 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 yeah, you're right. I mean, this is what I'm saying is is that actually just by taking a look at it in a different way, it it can kind of you know you can you can you know there is lots of low hanging fruit out there when it comes to waste that isn't isn't being yet being plucked. Now, obviously. Once you start plucking the low-hanging fruit, then obviously it gets harder. But the more you, the more experience you've got around this stuff, then clearly the more you can start to think more in a more sophisticated way about it. So, um, so we've deliberately, you know, so it's, a, it's a really interesting point about if you think about the circular economy, you know, the idea of moving from a linear model where we're raw materials, make them into products, sell the products, use the products, throw the products away to one where we're trying to maintain and keep those materials in in, 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 in a circle, in a loop. Um, and obviously the ideal is that we're designing waste out of the system and that's the ultimate, you know, the ultimate ideal. But, but we, so we've had big debates about should we call our platform waste map? Should it not be called the resource map or something like that? And I, I think part of the challenge is that if we call it resource map or circularity map, people kind of go, "Are you a mining company?" Or you know, I don't, I, I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> but if you talk about waste, everyone kind of gets it. And so we start, we very deliberately start with that bit of it, almost like the end of the pipe. Uh, but once people get that experience and see the benefits and everything else, they can start to think, "Oh, actually, maybe we should be doing this, or maybe we should do that." And and the, the, they then they then have the they're then enabled to to start to make business cases for investing, for example. Maybe there is a, a technology thing that could be helpful to them, but they've built that experience, they've seen the benefits, and, and they've also got data that they can use to build a business case for a different approach to handling of materials or byproducts or whatever it might be. Going on to a little bit about WasteMap, you've talked about how you incorporate storytelling into that and how often do you think about that from this sort of lens telling the story of waste through data and what is your approach to finding again that balance between data and storytelling in waste map again very really good question and um to address that first so i think coming back to the, the broader idea of reporting around sustainability and esg so absolutely there is 
a need to make those reports more data-driven, to make that data more, if you like, um, interoperable, and to make those reports, you know, certainly more credible, but also, you know, you can start to compare, you know, companies in different in the same sectors and all this kind of stuff. So there's a there's a whole piece there about the quality of the data that's being used to generate the, the the narrative that then goes with those reports. But absolutely, there is still scope within the context of that kind of reporting to tell stories because it's stories that convince people that actually we need to change or we can change and you know, there's opportunities there. So I think generally speaking around that kind of reporting, it's a balance between credibility and quality of data and actual narrative, but interesting narrative that is engaging and everything else. So there is a balance to be struck there. And it's the same with waste, right? So so I call, so the platform's called Waste Map for a number of reasons. Partly because I'm a geographer, so that's the way I see the world. Um, partly because there's a whole, you know, there's a whole kind of bank of, of analytical opportunity geospatially. We think about waste, it's like, we're putting it into bins in all of these different locations, in all these different places. They're then put into another bin. And then that bin is collected and moved by somebody and it's moved to another location. It's then emptied. And it's then all that different material is then mixed, uh, is then put together and baled in. And then that, that those bales of aluminium or steel or plastic are then sold somewhere else and moved somewhere else. So, so the map, the geospatial picture is really complex. So you can't divorce the geography from understanding what happens to it and what you can can do with it, I call it the wear of waste. Is my is, is, is my is my thing. Um, so so that's what so that's one aspect. Of it. So there's a huge analytical opportunity around that. But um, what is a map but a storytelling device? And if you think about the very first maps, because they weren't topographically correct, they were literally just storytelling devices. Hence, we have things like there be dragons. You know, in that in that part of the world, there are big sea ser serpents that will eat, eat you up. You know, um, so but then of course we've become more technologically sophisticated, so we now have you know topographic maps and satellite data and everything else. But fundamentally, cartography is an art and a and a science, because the art is to be able to distill a lot of information into a, 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 a single you know engaging understandable view and and that's absolutely what we're trying to do with waste map is that when we show people literally the map where their waste is kind of going from all of their sites that you know they kind of go oh man that's just because because often the waste is traveling you know, 500 miles or it's being exported and they've had no idea that that was the case, you know, because there's an assumption that it's being handled locally and so on and so forth. So, so, so I think, yeah, so it's that balance between the, the quality of data, the analysis, analytical capability, but the ability to tell a story, put all those three together and, and essentially you've got a means to drive behavior change which is kind of what I guess, you know, our customers are trying to do internally within their organizations is, is influence sort of behaviors, influence processes, influence, influence investment in 
in in technologies and processes in order to fundamentally meet their strategic goals when it comes to sustainability and within that when it comes to circularity or, or, or waste. Amazing. It's always been a personal interest of mine of how, you know, like you were mentioning with maps and how maps are storytelling devices at, at heart. And I, I love the sort of tale of how maps and locations get the names and how that sort of history rolls into it and how everything is a, is a, is a story if you look at it from a certain angle. And that's a, a fascinating thing about waste mapping. Another thing that I'd love to talk about is... Um, moving conversations and discussions that have happened in your space through through cinema and just for our audience if you could explain what moving conversations is and how it's perce- how it's changed people's perceptions of, of 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 waste gosh i haven't been asked about moving conversations for quite quite some time so in in, in a former life well i still love cinema right so um but i i always had this hankering to run a cinema company or a cinema chain if you like so this would be Oh gosh, you know, twenty-five years ago, whatever. And I, so I started talking to like cinema companies because I wanted to learn about how does it work, you know, and what 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 happens. And I'd seen some uh, cinemas in in Portland in um, in the US, and and they were they had this model which is they called Brew and View, which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> and it was basically a brew pub and the cinema. You know, and I thought, oh, excellent idea. So it was it was all about, um, you know, obviously really improving the whole kind of eating, drinking type experience, as uh, as well as the, obviously the cinemas. But at the same time, what was happening was the digitization. So you started to get digital films being made digitally and then the ability to project those films digitally rather than on cellular. So you had this kind of thing happening, and I thought, it's really fascinating. But once I started talking to uh, the cinema industry, I realized actually cinema exhibition is not an entertainment business. It's a property business because <laughs> it's all about pounds per square foot, and it's about, you know, about obviously about concessions and everything else. I thought, actually, I'm more interested in the content bit than I am in the sort of property bit. So what we did was we, we, we started doing stuff in other people's cinemas. Uh, and one of the things that kind of emerged from that was this uh, format called Moving Conversations. Um, and um, and essentially, it's a panel discussion. And what we do is we engaged with um, a number of uh, film archives. So we worked with ITN, uh, ITN Source, which was the essentially what ITN were doing were digitizing their own archive. Uh, but they also had other, they had the ITV, some of the ITV archive, they had some of the, the Reuters archive as well. So they had a whole massive, amazing kind of digital content go, that, or content that had been digitized going back sort of 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and we also then worked with the Scottish, um, uh, the Scottish Screen Archive, which is the official Scottish, you know, archive of film. As well, and they were digitizing some of their output. So essentially, the way it worked is we we would choose a topic, and we did quite. A, we've done quite a lot around uh, around climate change, around sustainability, um, you, you know, those kind of topics. But we've done many other topics as well, like sales or poetry or acting or technology or whatever. Uh, and we've done it at various cinemas around the place, and um, and essentially, we get the topic, and and then each of the panelists would choose a clip from one of the archives. 
Um, and then we would, you know, we would essentially license that clip or get access to that clip through the archive. Uh, and then we would, uh, you know, on the night, they essentially, we'd, they'd be introduced to the audience, then each one of them would show a clip to the audience, and then the panelists would have to pitch the clip to the audience. They'd have to say, right, this clip says something about the topic. And, you know, my advice to them all was choose a funny clip because you'll get the audience on side. Um, and then it doesn't matter if it doesn't obviously make a link, but you make the link. You know, you could, it can be as tangential as you like. So, so actually, it worked really well, um, or and it works really well as a way to engage an audience around what may be seen to be a, a kind of serious kind of topic, uh, and that's moving conversations. Um, so, so yeah, so and you know, and, and, and I say we've just kind of we've run them in, uh, you know, we've run them obviously in Edinburgh where we're based, but we've run them in London, we've run them in Dublin. <laughs> Um, and Aberdeen, um, Glasgow, you know, uh, Liverpool. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so so we so we sort of run all over the shop. So, but yeah, it's a, it's just a brilliant way to address a seemingly serious topic in a way that is again engaging. So I guess it comes back a bit to that whole communication storytelling thing as well, I suppose. And that wraps uh, all of our sort of main questions, but. As of today, it's a, it's a Friday. We're recording this on a Friday, so we'll have a little bit of fun. We usually do a few quick fire questions, just as a bit of fun at the end of these. Um, and so we'll kick it off with, where do you go for inspiration for your day job and to sort of feed your creative brain, so to speak? Well, my wife and my daughter always provide me with inspiration. They would kill me if I didn't say that. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, hill walking, cycling, or cycle touring, I love that kind of stuff. They're just getting out and about. I mean, obviously, in Scotland, you know, we, we have a third of the UK landmass on our doorstep, north of here, north of Edinburgh, and it's just amazing. So, so it's a you know that 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 inspires me, um, and yeah, I mean, just you know, personally. So, in a former life, I shouldn't say this maybe, but I have a private pilot's license. Oh wow. <laughs> so, I don't fly. I don't fly at the moment, but 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 you know, flying and stories of flying uh, absolutely um, inspires me as, as as well. Some of the old pioneers of some of those early flights are amazing. I've got some amazing stories. So the next one would be, and I have a, so there might be a little bit of tidbits that also dropping this. So in, in in another life, what would your career be? Do you think? Well, it's it's funny because because I come from a showbiz background, and you know, my dad was in showbiz, my brother was in showbiz. Another one is a professor of ceramics, so he's like really pot, you know, makes amazing pottery and stuff. Uh, and then my sister's a, you know, she's a, a deaf interpreter, and she's there's all sorts of kind of amazing things. Um, I, I I guess I, I guess I should have been in showbiz, shouldn't I? I guess really, but, uh, <laughs> but instead I'm. I mean, that's actually one of the reasons why I started moving conversations because I thought nobody's going to pay me to stand up in front of an audience. So if I organize my own thing, I've got the right to stand up in front of an audience. <laughs> so yeah, so I suppose that would be it. Going a little bit into something a bit different, how would you describe your leadership style? You get what you see, I think, really. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, it's a really difficult on that because, um, you know, one always makes mistakes, and you know it's 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 never easy, and it's it's all it's always it's always difficult. Um, 
Um, so yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess I just try and be as kind of natural as I, as as I can, and and hopefully enthusiastic. I think enthusiasm, I think, is is is, is something enthusiasm for for what we do. So yeah, I think it would be that. Bad. That. I, I like the uh, what you see is what you get approach as well. I think that's I think that's quite a good and organic approach to it. So, and and from maybe that leadership, what is sort of the best piece of advice you've ever been given yourself? Actually, somebody once said to me, "Never say sorry," which was quite an interesting one. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but I, I think there are, I think there are ways of yeah, and I think what they meant was don't 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 or don't just always you know put yourself down and you know don't don't you know try and try and positively engage even if you you know even if you've made a mistake um you know don't don't um you know don't don't let don't let it sort of grind you down or beat you down but just accept it and just kind of get on with things and try and do things differently so i think that was really where it was coming from nice nice and this is our trademark question we ask everybody this on a scale of one to ten how weird are you, Mike? I think we're all weird in our own ways. So let's put it that way. Um, uh, I, I'm as weird as people think I am. That's a good way of putting it. That's a good way of putting it. So, so the scale, so the scale for you is somewhere, but it's, it, it falls somewhere between one and ten. And it's up for interpretation. Yeah, I think so because you know it's like you know I, I, I do I have a view on whether I am weird or not. I, I don't think I have a view on whether I'm weird or not. It's just I am who I am. I do what I do. I do it the way I do it. I, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, um, and it comes back to this, you know, take me as you find me. And uh, some people may find that what I do or what I've done strange. <laughs> um, others may not. I don't, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. That, that wraps up all the questions that we have, uh, Mike. And just thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. And let's go get that sunny Friday. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.